0: Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me And hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, I have Lindsay with Mind Money Balance. Now, Lindsay and I go back a little ways, and I've been able to be a guest on her podcast. She is warm, kind, smart, and shame Free, which is so important. Lindsay, welcome to the show. And why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, hi Ed. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. And as you mentioned, we met because we're both financial therapists. And we met a few years ago actually, when there were even less financial therapists than you see nowadays. And I love seeing more therapists and people in the finance profession get additional training. But yeah, so I'm a financial therapist. My background is in clinical social work, which is where that shame-free piece really comes from. In social work training, a big part of the education and a big part of the lens is seeing things through a strengths-based perspective. So instead of seeing somebody's behaviors is bad or maladaptive or wrong, we try to look at it and go, well, how is that helping them? Even if we might think that there could be better ways to do it or healthier ways to do it, how can we acknowledge where that person is at by really just extending some compassion and grace to them that they're doing the best they can with what they have? And so that's where the shame-free piece comes from.
0: You know, I I was really struck when I was reading back over your bio preparing for today's interview and the way that you describe yourself as biracial Mm -hmm which I know is becoming more and more common for people to just go ahead and own that and say yeah. that. And I imagine that that has a lot of impact on understanding the world and money, um, owning my own white male perspective mm-hmm. and its limits for sure. Mm-hmm. But then also the way that you acknowledge the land that you live on, I thought yeah. was very moving. And so maybe you can weave some of that part yeah. of who you yeah. are into the story of how you've, and kind of the journey to becoming a financial therapist, what preceded okay. this.
1: Yeah, of course. So, um, I grew up, I am biracial, I'm Filipino and white. And I grew up with my biological mom who is white and my sisters who are all white and my adoptive dad who is white. So I grew up as the only brown kid in a white family in a rural town in Michigan that was 99.7% white. So I was also raised in the you know late 80s, early 90s where the go-to default around differences was to kind of say that we're really all the same and actually nobody's different, right? That was that was the polite thing to do. That was at that point in time, the progressive thing to do. And so it wasn't really until I got to college that I started exploring other parts of my identity um, and really started stepping into, I'm not one or the other. I'm not half. I'm really both. And I think so many of us occupy identities that are marginalized and identities that are, um, ones of privilege, right? So yes, I have marginalized identities in that I'm a woman, I have mental health issues and I can identify as a part of a marginalized race. And then I have a lot of privilege and that I grew up in a household of financial privilege. I had access to things like healthcare and education. I was born in the U S so I'm not undocumented. Um, and so there are a lot of things where I, I think it's so important just to acknowledge where we've had an extra step forward and to acknowledge that you know, we we all have areas of our lives where we've had advantages and we've all had areas of our lives that are disadvantaged. And so for me to really own that I am biracial and that I live on Peoria, Fox, Potawatomi, and Anishinaabe land, which is currently known as Michigan, just helps to extend awareness to those different things. Um, And because of my financial privilege, it actually lends itself to why I ended up in financial therapy. My parents paid for my college. And so when I finished school, I didn't have any student loan debt. And then when I got my first job as a social worker, my first paycheck, I was making less than what I made as a waitress. And so I had all of this money shame that I had squandered my privilege, that I had wasted my advantage. What was I going to do? Um, and so that, that's really when I dove head first into personal finance. And then when I did that, it was very shame laden. As you and I both know, it's very much cut the lattes, stop going out, do less it was all about restrict. Um, and I mentioned that I've struggled with mental health stuff, like most of us have at the time I was starting learning about personal finance. I was also in recovery from an eating disorder, which I'm now proudly 10 years in recovery from that. So a lot of that, yeah, I know we're watching a, or it's a podcast, but you, Ed's cheering me on, which is really special. So thank you. Um, so that was the other piece about the personal finance industry that didn't really resonate with me was that it was so restriction-based, so shame-based, and it felt really familiar in a triggering way because with a lot of eating disorder stuff, it's all about what's good, what's bad, how wrong you are, what you're not allowed to have, and it just hit way too close to home. Um, And so that really, those were really some personal things that were, that were leading me towards financial therapy, and I specialized in Anxiety work. And as you can imagine, a lot of people have anxiety about money. And I just felt like I wanted to be ethical about bringing those two worlds together. And then that's when I sought out additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy. And then fast forward, here we are. And and I've got my practice, Mind Money Balance, where I help people get their minds and money in balance using shame free financial therapy.
0: Wow. I don't know how I missed so many important (laughs) details about you from a few (laughs) years ago, but man, I am so glad that you shared all of that and all of you. And one of the things that stands out to me is this, uh, I think lens that I I would use is all the parts of you, all the Mm -hmm. different identities, all the things that come together to make you, you, it's not just one thing. And another part of that really stood out to me was this, reality that i have parts of myself that are marginalized in society and mm-hmm. not seen and not understood and not accepted and i have parts that are privilege-based mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and they coexist within you and it yeah. sounds like that's probably true for most of us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're not all marginalization or all privilege
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. maybe you can have and i don't know if this is white guy guilt so i'll, <laughs> I'll just call it that but As a white male, uh, trying to work through understanding a lot of that and the the labels of privilege and marginalization, I end up working with a lot of white males, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's people see me as as a white male and they're like, oh, he's going to get me. Yeah. And so I'm curious about how you frame that that part of the conversation. That's something that's still very much in process for me.
1: In, In what way?
0: See, this is even where I'm tongue twisted. I'm looking to you and saying, Lindsay, help me even right. bring language.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to help. No, and I'm, I'm glad you're being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I've got my finger on a question, but I need some help kind of processing it. And I think I just want to name that that's incredibly brave of you. I think so many people doing this work, which is the work of recognizing privilege and oppression, get scared to even ask the question. So kudos to you for being here and being like, yeah, let, let's see if we can unpack this a bit. I think it's so powerful.
0: See, that's – and I think this, right, like kind of from a different angle, that's a shame-free response, Mm. right? You're able to see me struggling with – I know I need to and I want to work through this. I don't know how to address this with you. I'm kind of even surprising you with it. It wasn't part of the stated plan. (laughs) I just kind of stumbled into it. So, yeah, I think it's – so part of my own journey Coming from growing up in that progressive background where when you talked about, like, we're all one of the same, kumbaya, let's accept everybody, right? I'm a child of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so home of progressiveness for sure. And then I moved to the American South and Houston, Texas. And the section of Houston that I lived in and the people I met, more more or less not progressive. Mm. And this is not a slight to their way of being. And it's taken me a long time to get there and understand that. But their way of being and understanding the world was so different than mine that I felt like I had to hide parts of myself Mm -hmm. and my own understanding and and young understanding of what it means to be progressive. That wasn't even something I would have described for myself. And so now at 40, culture has changed so much. I'm maturing and I'm saying, what does it now mean to be a white male? And to have privilege, to not feel like I've come from privilege, but to hear that I do have inherent privileges because of my white maleness. You know, and I think in the context of financial therapy, I know for me, it really gets me hung up on this journey of building wealth and being comfortable with having wealth, mm. where I, I don't have, didn't start with incredible wealth. My father was an electrician. My mother was a teacher's aide. So we had financial okay. security, but not abundance relative. So what am I saying, Lindsay? Um, My stumbling through this is to really show and help other people understand there's so many layers to this work, isn't there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All of this work is nuanced and layered. And I think it's so important that when we talk about money, we acknowledge that, you know, money doesn't exist in and of itself in a vacuum. And that's why I think therapists are so uniquely poised to hold space for people as they untangle these topics because we can't talk about money without talking about mental health or politics or socioeconomic status or race. All of those things are intertwined. And I think it it really behooves us to we're really good at sitting with discomfort as therapists. And so to me, it's like, shoot, you, you want to talk about sex and trauma or do you want to talk about money? Like if we really want to get uncomfy, <laughs> let, let's talk about the money stuff because it's going to bring it all up. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: I really appreciate you naming that one of the big attributes of a therapist is learning how to be comfortable sitting with the discomfort. Yeah. Can you elaborate what that means?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I say sitting with discomfort, it's exactly what it sounds like. So for anybody listening, when you've ever been in one of those conversations where you get that like like pit in your stomach (laughs) and you're like, I I, I just want to like disappear to a puddle on the floor, like that's sitting with discomfort. And as we know, when when we're in a situation like that, there are many different ways that we can react. But one of the, the two most common ways that I see us react is by trying to jump in and problem solve right away, or by like just totally clamming up and freezing and not being able to engage in the conversation. Instead of just sitting with that silence and letting our bodies kind of re-regulate themselves, taking a few deep breaths, um, getting re-acclimated to the scenario, and even just naming what's going on. Sometimes when we're in those moments of discomfort, just saying, oh, what what you just said is really landing pretty heavy for me. I'm going to need a minute to process. It buys you time. And it allows that other person in the conversation to know that you're really taking them seriously. I mean, inside you might be screaming and jumping up and down or inside you might be crying or outside you might be doing those things. I don't know, (laughs) but just, just hanging out. We're so quick to want to fix things. Um, and I'm guilty of this. Like, I'm not saying like, Oh, I'm so relaxed. I mean, ask any of my family members, they'll tell you (laughs) patience is not a virtue that comes naturally to me. It's very hard for me. Um, but sitting with that discomfort can help us get through some of those tough conversations and and figure out some sort of compromise if we can't get to a collaboration or at least understanding the other person's point of view.
0: Mm. There's so much in what you said, but I I think because people are listening and they can't see us, what I want to name is as I was just a few moments ago kind of trying to work my way through white privilege as you had brought that up. And I was like, oh man, here's my invitation. I'm going to jump on this and talk about it. (laughs) I had, I don't know if you noticed, Lindsay, but I had slid down in my chair and was kind of like hiding behind the microphone. (laughs) Like maybe she won't see me. Like maybe I'm going to be okay. I didn't fully recognize it. But then like after I had mumbled through it all, I repositioned, I came up and you're looking at me and I could look at you and be like, I don't know what your internal experience was of me sharing that, Mm -hmm. but you sat with me in my own discomfort and were just present and your face, at least as I was reading it, was warm and curious and open. And that's such a valuable experience for people and being able to do that with your intimate partner is so important, right? Like I'm gonna shift that's this conversation it. a little bit because yeah. I know you work with couples around money, I do. And because money is such an uncomfortable, uh, topic, they have a hard time sitting face to face and looking eye to eye and having that gaze and that intimacy around money.
1: Mm.
0: How do you help couples start to, to move in that direction where they can really see each other, look face to face and talk about money?
1: Oh my gosh. It's so funny. You say that about looking eye to eye and sitting face to face, because sometimes one of my go-to things is to actually not do that Um, Uh, is to do more shoulder to shoulder time uh and having those conversations. And what I mean by that for listeners is literally think of the times where you would be shoulder to shoulder with somebody that might be on the couch, that might be in a car, that might be meal prepping together. But sometimes when we're talking about really uncomfortable things, Eye contact feels like the most intimate and the most personal thing. So we actually may need a break from it. So eventually you may may be able to get to the place of like holding hands, knee to knee, eye to eye, maybe not eye to eye, but looking at each other's eyes and getting there. But going back to what you and I were talking about of just sitting in the discomfort, I think it's so important for each person to just name what's going on when it comes to money that just to help helps to really set the stage for what's going on. And it could be saying to your partner, like, wow, our credit cards are really high right now. And it's, I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming myself. I'm just saying, wow, I logged in and, and that number kind of freaked me out. And when you're ready, I would love to sit down and kind of come up with a plan to figure out how we're going to make that number not as high. Um, and the other thing I think that's really powerful is to give your partner that time before you have the conversation. So give them a heads up that you want to talk about money. Just don't launch into it, right? As soon as they get home from work, maybe you work from home and your partner's out in in the field or in the office or whatever they're doing. And they come in and you're like, oh my gosh, our mortgage is late. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And it's like, they haven't even had a millisecond to breathe. They haven't been able to take their their shoes or their boots off yet. And so, saying to them, "Hey, I know you just got home. We don't need to talk about this today. But in the next few days, could we sit down and talk about what's going on? You know, at the time of this recording, and you and I are in the middle of every single headline. Seems to be that the sky is falling financially. We've got uh, you know, a potential recession coming our way. We are officially in a bear market. Inflation is wildly high kind of products that we need for health and hygiene are hard to find on the shelves. Like it is quite stressful right now. So there's no shortage of things to be stressed out about, but also talking about those things when you're activated or when you're feeling, um, that's a fancy word for saying emotional, (laughs) Ah, when you're feeling activated, just just (laughs) let your partner know, hey, let's talk about this at a different time. And that gives your partner a second to get grounded to get back in their body and to come to that conversation prepared. So those would be a few things.
0: Yeah, I think you're highlighting uh, financial blindness in your partner is one of those big mistakes I see with couples yeah. all the time. Yeah. And it what I mean by that is you're activated, you're triggered, you're emotionally overwhelmed because you just saw the credit card balance and it's much higher than you expected. Yeah. And now your arousal is so high that you're you're really not in control of yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're you're looking for support and regulation, but what your partner experiences upon walking in the door is often panic, overwhelm, or attack. Mm -hmm. Which, for many partners, when they get blindsided that way, does not evoke a care, nurturing, calming response.
1: No, no, it's it's like you know we've all been in those situations where somebody around us tells us to calm down, and it's like, Oh. oh, calm down. You want you me know, to calm down? What? Exactly. Exactly. It's that same thing. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, as we get to like naming all this discomfort, just saying like, this is really hard for me to talk about. I feel really anxious or I feel really, you know, really weird even bringing this up, just naming it and putting it out there can help your partner to to get where you're at. And hopefully, you know, your partner has a sense of what works for you when you're feeling anxious or when you're feeling overwhelmed and they can provide that type of emotional support that they've probably provided for you in other scenarios and, and vice versa.
0: It it is a reciprocal process, both people being able to support each other. You know, my wife has become fond of saying "Um, I need the cone of safety (laughs) and that's her way of letting me know in advance. Like I need to, I want to talk to you about something difficult.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. And so, Within every couple, you can develop your own idiosyncratic or unique ways of signaling to your partner that you're re- you're needing to go into something difficult. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I encourage a lot of couples to start working towards is how do you signal that you need to go into a difficult mm-hmm. conversation? And sometimes even having places, right? So you were talking about being shoulder-to-shoulder versus eye-to-eye. And walks are a place where I hear a lot of couples talk yes. about they process their experiences together. Oh, totally.
1: Totally. My partner and I got a dog four years ago and I i swear, you know, there's that statistic that dogs help to reduce the risk of heart attack. I don't know if it's real or not, but at <laughs> any rate I'm like, yeah, it could be the walks, but it also could be that processing that you get to do that. I find it's hard to kind of replicate that in, in adult life. So yeah, I love that.
0: Well, and walking is, uh, you know, I, my understanding like bilateral stimulation for the body yep is so critical to activating both hemispheres of the brain yeah which is when we really start to integrate different sources of knowledge and understanding Mm -hmm. Uh, just sitting there alone is not bilateral stimulation just trying to reflect on it is not bilateral stimulation and so it can be hard to make sense out of things
1: yeah oh such a good point
0: When we're in a living, breathing relationship and we're walking, it's like we have to engage much more of our brain. Uh, So that's probably pretty beneficial, I would guess, that way.
1: For
0: sure. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. All right, so I'm shifting again because... Your, your show notes, you put in so much great stuff that I'm like, man, I want to cover it all. I know I probably won't, and maybe I should just let myself off the hook for that. Uh, it just means I'm going to have to invite you back, Lindsay.
1: <laughs> That's fine.
0: <laughs> awesome. All right. So one of the things you talked about is divesting from personal finance experts yeah. to deepen money intimacy. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Tell me, I mean, because people are listening to two finance experts right now. so. Yeah. Don't quit listening yet, but maybe after the show's over, you can stop yeah. listening.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this goes back to when I was saying. I was consuming a lot of personal finance content, and it was really lo- laden with guilt and shame, and this is the right way, this is the wrong way. What I find with a lot of my clients, because I specialized in anxiety, as you know, I've already said before I moved into financial therapy is that a lot of my clients are over-consumers of information. They listen to every podcast about budgeting. They read every blog about FIRE. That's Financial Independence Retire Early. They follow every influencer on you know, IRS uh, loopholes or whatever it may be, right? They're really, really aware of the ins and outs of personal finances. And yet because they have that anxiety, it's really hard for them to trust that they know enough. And so this is really specific to the types of clients who If I were to give them like, you know, a 10 question quiz about the basics of personal finance, they'd all score a 10 out of 10 or maybe a nine or an eight out of 10. But at any rate, they're passing with flying colors. And yet they're still trying to consume more information because they're experiencing this self-doubt. And so when I say divest from personal finance experts, I'm not saying go put all your money in crypto. Please do not misinterpret it as that. I'm saying (laughs) you and your partner, Are the experts on not only your relationship and what works for you, but also what works best for you financially speaking? So, yes, have the baselines of personal finance figured out. Maybe work with a CFP if that feels appropriate to you. And the two of you need to be having the types of deep conversations to where you are aligned about your goals. What are we doing with our money in the next year? What are the things we're saving for in five years? When do we want to retire? Do we want to pay for our kids to go to college? Is it important for us to own a home? All of those questions, yes, they're questions about reverse engineering your dollars and figuring out a way to get there. But they're really deeper questions about what you want your relationship to look like and how you envision it for the future. And that, to me, is incredibly deep, intimate work. Is really talking about, I want to be with you, not just this year, not just this month, but for the next five years, for the next 20 years, until we hit retirement and hopefully beyond retirement, and then to collaborate together on a plan, that's the real intimacy that no, you know, quick table in a personal finance book is is going to give you. So that's, that's my take. And I say that as both Ed and I are authors. We're not anti-book. I'm not saying I'm anti-book. I'm just saying read right. the books and then you and your partner discuss what's best for you. Well,
0: I think, yeah, that's... And again, I appreciate that caution because this is not an all or nothing statement. Like stop listening to money experts, stop learning about money even, but it's become aware of what's driving that need for learning. Mm -hmm. Is it from a place of anxiety and fear and self-doubt that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Or is it because you're in a new phase of working through money, let's just say it's time to work on estate planning and maybe you don't know a lot about estate planning and you want to, you want to do it work through that, reading a couple of blog posts, maybe checking out a podcast, talking to a few estate planning attorneys, all good stuff to do so you're familiar with the general process so you can be an informed consumer of the estate planning process. But if you're reading five, seven books on estate planning and you're still questioning whether you know enough to figure it out, then maybe we need to really talk about what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that
0: Pretty reasonable example. Yeah.
1: No, you nailed it, and it it brought up a memory for me of of my personal experience again with financial anxiety. Uh, before my partner and I got married, I went to the library and checked out every book I could on marriage and money. <laughs> and I read. <laughs> How many them. Did you
0: find? There can't be that many.
1: There were well, there didn't... were seven. I remember. I checked out all seven. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> I remember them very clearly, and I read them all and not surprisingly, they had like kind of the baseline information the same, but everybody's rules were different enough to really spiral me out. Mm. Um, and that's when it came back to like, what works for my partner and I, these are great ideas, but like us splitting our finances, you know, one of the, the, I can't remember which book I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. This is just an example. One of the examples was if you earn 75% of the income and your partner earns 25% of the income, then everything should be split 75, 25. And I was just thinking in my head, like, that's going to be a nightmare. If my partner gets a raise or if I lose my job, that just is not going to be sustainable for us. I don't want to be cutting the cable bill into quarters, like, you know, advice like that. And instead of going, does this work for us? It was like, Oh my gosh, we're not doing that. You know?
0: I, that's so powerful and it, i love this phrase and I, it came from a, a book related to reading the bible that's another whole nother story but the title of the book was called permission granted yeah yeah and basically the whole author's premise was you have permission to question the interpretations of the bible
1: mm, mm-hmm.
0: and you know for a lot of people that's really risky business yeah
1: absolutely really scary. And I think
0: I think the same can be true is we have these authority figures that are making very declarative statements about this is how you should do it. Yep. And that, for those of us that want to respect or follow authority, okay, yeah, I'll do that. That will be great. But then, as you were saying, I really appreciate you saying spiral out, is when you do read seven books on marriage and money, you don't get the same advice and if they're each offered from a very declarative pos- position now you're really in a quagmire yep and so you have to at start what you're proposing is what's actually going to work for my partner and I and would it be reasonable to say sometimes it takes a little bit of experimenting to figure out what the money arrangement that's going to work best for the two of you is going to be
1: absolutely and that's the other piece of sitting with discomfort is being comfortable getting it wrong, financially speaking. And that's terrifying. To extend permission to ourselves to mess up with our money, like that is a real, real fear. Um, But I tell all of my clients, it's not if you make a mistake, it's when. And Uh we're just going to get that out of the way right away because that is a part of this entire process. And if we can look at it more of, you know, a science experiment and less of following the doctrine of somebody's table, it's much more approachable.
0: What a powerful uh, metaphor and framing (laughs) that this is much more like a science experiment. Someone's giving us a way to set it up and test it out and see.
1: Exactly. As opposed
0: to like, this is the doctrine of the financial guru and I'm, they come from on high yeah. And I'm a little peon, and I must follow them because they're my financial savior.
1: Yes, 100%.
0: Mixing many religious metaphors, but obviously.
1: No, yeah, that's okay. I'm following them. I like it.
0: <laughs> yes. So if we peel back the layers and go a little bit deeper, what's beneath financial anxiety?
1: Well, I think there's a few things beneath financial anxiety. So one is that it's, it's very real in that it feels physiologically identical to traditional anxiety. It feels like a racing heart, sweaty palms, knots in your stomach, dizziness. It feels very real because it is very real. And then the other thing with financial anxiety that we're getting towards is in our culture, we have been so trained, as you mentioned, to do things the right way and then things will happen the right way. But that doesn't really happen with money. There are different ways to do it. Some that will work for us and some that won't. And that's really scary for us because throughout our conditioning, whether it's school or our first jobs or whatever, we have been told do things this way and you'll get a knife, do things this way, you'll get a raise. And that just doesn't really work with money. And So that's a part of it. So we've got all of these things kind of happening. And then there's this overarching message about the story of money in our country. We're both based in the U.S. The the story of money in our country is it's really important to work hard. When you work hard, you'll be rewarded financially. And when you're rewarded financially, you'll feel better so that's something that's been sold to us from the time we were little right and so a lot of people fall into the trap of working hard or trying to earn a lot of money and then not really feeling better and then it's really confusing well i went out there i got the you know the the four-year degree i went on and i did that internship i busted my butt working 60 hours a week i got the promotion and wow, I still feel like garbage, or my relationship still feels really hollow, or my partner and I are still fighting all the time. And so it's really scary, because money can also be this, this band-aid kind of laying on top of other things that are going on. And so when we actually you know, wanna address the money stuff, we're, we're yeah, we're talking money, but we're talking about everything else underneath it, which is again, why I will like, you know really talk about the fact that therapists are really suited to do this work.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is that work hard, feel satisfied, you'll be financially successful. And there are elements of truth to that, mm-hmm. but it's more truthful for different people. And, exactly. you know, I think the sad thing this time I'm going to give you a little forewarning. I'm asking okay. for your help Great. on this one. Okay. Let's take two very hardworking individuals. One gets a master's in social work, mm-hmm. mental health. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm not picking on you. Like, That's this okay. is our field. And another gets a master's in um, electrical engineering. Yeah. Have they worked equally hard to get those degrees in your mind? I'm yeah. sorry, and I don't mean to put you in a bad spot. No,
1: please. Yeah, of course.
0: But then when they go into the labor market, what's their reality?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you, right, statistically speaking, mental, mental health care providers are incredibly underpaid compared to other master's level professionals. Yeah, so I really...
0: So knowing that as true, right, like this is true, right? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to play it by the rules. And yep. in many ways, there's also this added layer of like, especially I think in the the helping fields, follow your heart, do what's right for society, that will be gratifying, And that should almost like make up for the compensation difference between you and the person that chose engineering Mm -hmm. or whatever the other person higher paid. But then financial reality sets in. Mm -hmm. And how do you recommend that people start to work through and reconcile that? Because I feel like there's a very toxic message that. You need to then go do extra work so that you can actually get paid. You got to go do something other. You got to go become an entrepreneur. You got to go sell books or create courses or do all these other things so that you can make comparable income to the person that can step into a job making a certain amount of money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What you're talking about is the reality of the system that we live in, which values different jobs at at different, you know, dollar amounts. And to right. get a little, you know, you could drag me back if needed, but a true capitalist would say, "Yeah, that's the point of capitalism. Is that some jobs pay less and some jobs pay more. If you want to be a part of the system, those are the rules of the game. That's how you play." But when right. it comes to what you're speaking to, which is what if I did follow the rules and I did work hard and I'm not financially compensated, and golly gee, turns out I can't pay my bills with how good I feel about the work that I do in the world. That's when, again, therapy comes into play. And that's when we layer on dialectics, which is just this idea that two things can exist at once. Yes, you can do good work, and it's important to make good money. And think back to, like, you know, my, one of my first jobs was I was a server, or before I was a server, I was like a salad bar and a hostess person at a big boy. I don't know if you guys have those in the South, you know, or they might call them Elias brothers. Um, You know, but I worked really, really hard. I I mean, I will say that, you know, I was 15, 16 and I was running around with like, you know, the, what is that? The busing dish tray, whatever. I was, I was working till two in the morning on weekends. Like I was out there working and I was making five dollars an hour, you Uh, know? And it's like, I mean, that's, that's pretty intense labor and we only value it at five bucks an hour. But anyway, my point is two things can be true at once. You can do good work, but good work that is fulfilling on a soul level doesn't always pay the bills and there's nothing wrong with advocating for better pay overall. And I think, you know, that's the other piece of my work is helping therapists to advocate for, better pay, you know, and that's what mental health parity was supposed to be. It was supposed to be equal compensation for mental health care and physical health care. And we still quite aren't there yet.
0: So this really gets to more of the systemic and structural changes, right? Yes. The social workers learn about.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: And this, this tension of having to live within the system as it is and needing the system to grow and adapt. Is that... Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The
0: reality that we have to, because I feel like sometimes it's like the shaming messages will just buck up and suck up, like just suck it up, deal with it. It's just the reality. Tough luck for you.
1: Oh yeah. And we're hearing it right now, right? You're hearing a lot of people, like if you complain about gas prices, you're being told, we'll go find another job, but it's a little chicken or the egg. If I can't afford the gas to put in my car to go get another job, how do you propose that I get that other job? You know, so we see it all the time.
0: Well, and and I guess there's that lack of sensitivity for um, price sensitivity. Mm. As a person of relative means, a dollar fifty change in gas doesn't impact our family budget nearly as much as the person that's making seven dollars an hour now, yep. busting those tables. Yep. A large percentage of their income is now consumed in paying the extra fuel cost, and the types of jobs that they can get to from where they're at in their education don't often give them meaningful increases in income to absorb that change in a basic commodity such as gas or mm-hmm. milk. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, you know, thinking through that lens of, like, as we gain privilege, as financial privilege in particular, how do we sit well with that reality? Yeah.
1: My answer to this question is, of course, it's complicated, but where I fall at this snapshot in time is to really kind of choose one area and the reason that this works for me in my head. And of course you and your listeners are are welcome to disagree. I think if we've talked about anything, it's that, you know, you're, you're welcome and encouraged to form your own opinion. Um, right, but many right. years ago I was reading a Rolling Stone article with Paul McCartney and you know, whoever was interviewing him had asked like, why did you choose XYZ charity to kind of be the main source that you donated to? And his response was Look, I believe that we are all interconnected and that my efforts go farther when I put more of my money into one source and knowing that there's a ripple effect everywhere, instead of kind of divvying up my money and putting it into a bunch of different buckets that can do a little bit of good, but not a lot. And so that, I think I read that back in college, but that message really resonated with me and that's kind of still where I stand. So there are ways to spend your money in alignment with your values day to day. You know, if you can shop at the farmer's market and you really value community and sustainability, great, do that. If you can walk one day to work instead of drive a couple days to work, great, do that. But if you have that additional leftover, what I do in my business is I pick one organization a quarter that I donate some of my profits to Uh rather than picking 10 that I'm donating a little bit of money to each one. And that's what works for me. And it also satisfies the itch of being like, oh, but I'm really interested in this. And I really want to help this person. I kind of tell myself like, Over the course of the year, I'll have four different organizations that I can give to. um, And that's what feels good for me at this snapshot in time. And I'm giving myself permission to say, I may change my mind next quarter, or I may change my mind tomorrow, and that's okay too. But that always stuck with me, this idea that when you have the capacity to give back, if you can give a lot to one place, everything's interconnected and it'll all ripple out.
0: Yeah, there is that deep place of we are all interconnected and interdependent on each other right there is um I mean that's part of the beauty of society as well and Mm -hmm. the challenge
1: yeah Um, for sure kind of
0: camping out in this privilege area and maybe this will wrap up on this topic is have you experienced people kind of afraid of becoming wealthy because of the meanings of having privilege and status and the uncertainty about how to work through that
1: yeah absolutely um it in it it sometimes looks. This is gonna sound wild for for some people, but it sometimes looks like self sabotage in that like they don't advocate for a raise at work, or they don't tell you know their cell phone company, hey, you've been billing me for two lines, but I only have one. Like there's some of those things that come up because where yes, we get this message that if you work hard, you'll be rewarded financially. We also get this message that if you're too rich, then you're out of touch with reality and you're greedy and you're bad, right? So it's like, what is that magic number that we're supposed to find? So yeah, I do see that sometimes, um, especially when it comes to, you know, the field that I'm in, because that's the one I'm closest to is mental health care professionals. I see them often struggling with how to price their services, how many clients they can see when they do and don't do pro boner work when they are or aren't able to volunteer their time. There's a lot of that kind of self martyrdom because they don't want to become disconnected from being seen as a good fill in the blank, a good um, counselor, a good marriage and family therapist, a good social worker, a good community member. There is um, some of that as well. But
0: yeah, I think it's that the path of maintaining a sense of integrity on the journey into wealth or living in wealth is really a big topic. And it mm-hmm. has, I know for me, it's uh, been surprisingly more challenging at each new level of wealth that my wife and I have achieved to want accept and, and feel comfortable with it. And then like, what does that mean? What does that say about me? And am I still connected to reality?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What is reality? Mm-hmm. And kind of a, a big existential question. What is reality anyways? But yeah,
1: I can't answer that.
0: <laughs> no we're not we're not going to solve that one today. but I, and maybe kind of borrowing a little bit from the beginning of today's like sense that there's multiple parts to our identity, yeah, is that there are really different financial realities,
1: absolutely. And to absolutely. say
0: and for anyone to say that you're not living in financial reality is really kind of shame inducing because, yeah we we all live in different financial contexts with different social cultural expectations of us around money absolutely and so just because you don't understand my social cultural context around money doesn't mean it's less real for me hmm. right like i'm thinking about god i went you know i went to the philippines 16 years ago doing microfinance work and they have women group borrowers that yeah. you know are organizing and lending to each other because they can't access traditional financial. Yeah. And so what's important for them to do with money and how they organize this would be almost ludicrous for like you to get a group of therapists, women together, and they're like, okay, let's all pull our money and then fund each other's projects. Like no, yeah. you can just go to Bank of America or whatever bank and take out a loan and you don't have to do all that. But the behavior for them made makes a lot of sense in their context.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so
0: maybe that's really kind of as we're on this journey is recognizing our own financial context and and trying to stay non-judgmental as best as we can.
1: Mm, and I like that addition as best as we can, you know, doing doing the best we can.
0: I mean, I don't know about you, Lindsay, but I have a judge that lives right here. I think we all
1: do,
0: right? I'm pretty sure I'm at this point pretty convinced we all have one. Some of us don't recognize that we have it. That's a whole nother question. But uh, Lindsay, this has been a delight. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing in the world and the opportunity to talk with you about it. What's maybe one last thought, question, comment that you'd like listeners to take away?
1: Mm. One thing I'd like to leave listeners with is that You know, you're not bad with money. There are so many things that impact the way we think and feel about money. If I didn't think people had the capacity to change, I wouldn't be a therapist. So wherever you are now is is just a starting point. And I I hope that you take away from this conversation the nuggets that landed with you and you just toss aside the rest and start practicing that discernment and start cultivating that practice of self-trust.
0: I love that. You're not bad with money. Yeah. <laughs> That's huge. Um, Lindsay, where can people connect with you? You have a book, so please give a, a good plug for your book and anything else you want to yeah. share.
1: So my business is called Mind Money Balance. I am. My website is of that name. My podcast is of that name. My Instagram is of that name. And my book is an interactive workbook, and it's called The Financial Anxiety Solution, you can ask your local bookstore to order it for you. And that way your dollars stay in the community and you can practice a little bit of that um, as well, you know, kind of investing within your community. So that's how I ask for you to buy it if you are able. Um, and if not, you know, you can also ask your library to purchase it and get a copy there.
0: That's incredible. I really love that. I, I may, I'm going to ask for that to start happening with my book.
1: Yeah, it's, it feels really good. Yeah.
0: I like that a lot. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Ed. It was so great seeing you again. And thanks for having me. This was such a lovely, rich conversation. No pun intended.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll take it as a pun. I like it. Okay, great. All right. Take care, Lizzie. All
1: right. Bye, Ed.
0: I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you by giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard. It will help you along your journey of learning, healing and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed.